Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. Just in time for the opening week of Major League Baseball in 2014, the Reagan Library opened up a special baseball exhibition, which featured over 700 artifacts, including some of the rarest, historic, and iconic baseball memorabilia from the largest known private collector in the United States. The exhibition displayed extraordinary artifacts from Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers, and scores of other historically important players and organizations. Also featured were rare artifacts related to Ronald Reagan and baseball, from his days calling Chicago Cubs games to signed balls and jerseys he received while president. I really do love baseball, and I wish we could do this out in the lawn every day. I wouldn't even complain if a stray ball came through the Oval Office window now and then. When the Reagan Library set forth to create this exhibit on baseball, there was no doubt in our minds that we needed to invite Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda to come and speak. In 65 years, 20 years as manager, Tommy Lasorda led the team to two world championships, four National League titles, and eight division titles. And who can forget when he managed the United States to its first ever gold medal in baseball at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. So, on April 28, 2014, the legendary Tommy Lasorda came to the Reagan Library. He regaled the audience with tales of his time in baseball and kept all of us in stitches. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming one of America's treasures and true heroes, Mr. Tommy Lasorda. Thank you very much. After listening to that introduction, I thought I had died. <laughs> Ralph and I were teammates. Ralph, I'll tell you right now, you're a better singer than you were a pitcher. <laughs> I, I, I trained you how to sing. It's really an honor being here at the Reagan Library. I was fortunate enough to speak at the Nixon Library and then the Bush Library, and to see the gigantic show here is unbelievable. And it's a master. And to our president, who was, in my opinion, one of the greatest presidents that ever lived. The first time I met President Reagan was at Frank Sinatra's home, and he was the governor of our state. And then the next time I saw him 
he was going to be running for the president of the United States. And I talked to him, I met him in Chicago, and I said, I think you're going to win big. And he said, if I don't, can you get me a job as a sportscaster? <laughs> but I want to read something that maybe could be a lesson to all of us in this room. I can get my glasses on. It's amazing about this. It says, wrong email address. A lesson to be learned from typing the wrong email address. A Minneapolis couple decided to go to Florida to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the same hotel where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate their travel schedule. So the husband left Minneapolis and flew to Florida on Thursday while his bride flying down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel. There was a computer in his room. So he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing his error, sent the email. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow who had just returned home from her husband's funeral. <laughs> he was a minister who was called home to glory following a heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife. Subject, I've arrived. <laughs> Date, March 16, 2008. I know you're surprised to hear from me, but now they have computers here, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved one. I just arrived and have been checked in. I've seen that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is freaking hot down here. You know, I just celebrated our 64th wedding anniversary. Don't applaud me, applaud my wife. <laughs> but um, she accused me, she actually accused me of loving the Dodgers in baseball than loving her. I said, but hey, don't worry. I, don't, I love you more than I do football and basketball. <laughs> so that, that's it.
She, um, she is a great person. God gave me the greatest person he could give me. And um, I've seen her one time out of character. I was speaking to a group of FBI agents in Los Angeles. And uh, after it was over, the, we were talking and having a couple of drinks, whatever. And by the time I got in my car to go home to Fullerton, I looked at the clock and it said 3 a.m. I said, oh, my God, 3 o'clock in the morning. So I turned the lights off when I pulled into the driveway, <laughs> not to wake her. I got out and I closed the car very softly, the door. I opened the front door and I took my shoes off. I'm sure many of you guys have done this. <laughs> and uh, I tiptoed in. I took about seven steps and the lights went on. Where have you been? Three o'clock in the morning. You're out every night speaking, having a good time, and I'm sitting here waiting. I said, hey, hold it. Hold the phone. And I reached up into the liquor cabinet, and I took down a bottle of vodka, which I sampled in those days, and I poured some in the glass. I said, taste this. She said, I don't drink. You know that. Get it away from me. I said, just all I want you to do is take a sip. She said, I don't want to take a sip. I said, just take a sip. That's all I'm asking you. And she went like this. Ugh, this stuff is terrible. And I said, see? You think I'm out enjoying myself every night. <laughs> you know, people, when we celebrated our 64th, a reporter interviewed me. He said, how'd you do it? I said, it was easy, very easy. We go, out dan we, we go out dining and dancing three times a week. I said, my God, that's great. I said, yeah, she goes Monday, Wednesdays, and Friday. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. <clears throat> you know, many years ago, I was called to go to Washington that they were honoring President Ronald Reagan. And they knew I was friends with the family, so they invited me to go. And I get there, and it's in this large ballroom in a hotel in Washington. There are 3,000 people sitting in this place. 27 United States senators in this place. And they had two speakers, Margaret Thatcher and me. And she spoke first. <laughs> and I'm sitting there crying. She got three standing ovations while she's speaking. And I'm going, I got to follow this lady? Why did they do this to me? So when they introduced me, it took them about two minutes. And I got up and something came to me and I said, you know, when I found out that I was to speak to such an illustrious group of people, I said to myself, Tommy, sit down and, bite the, and write the best speech you have ever written in your life. And at 3 o'clock this morning, I had it. I said, this speech will definitely make an impact on those people. And when I got there, 
I lost my speech and Margaret Thatcher found it. Yeah. It's, and it saved my life. You know, when you're manager of a major league team, they take 25 players and they say, here, here's your team. Go win with them. They don't know much about them, but they say, go win with them. And you have to take these 25 and you have to go to spring training. They're a thorough and tough spring training and then begin the season. Well, we started out extremely well. But I had a problem. The guys couldn't throw the ball from second to first. I think all of you remember that, where Steve Sachs. The people sitting in the first base box seats went to the front office and wanted to change their seats because they were sitting in a danger zone. So I, now believe me, I take him, and, I, and I'm, I'm working with him, and I said, Saxy, how many home runs have you hit? He said, I hit three. I said, if you hit three home runs, why do you hit the ball in the air? If you cannot hit it over the fence, why, <laughs> why do that? You've got to hit line drives, left field, center field, right field, you wind up hitting 300. He said, thanks, Skip, okay. So two weeks later, he came to me and said, Skip, I got this hitting down pat now. I said, what is it, son? He said, now, when I walk up to the plate, 80% of the times I try to hit the ball through the middle. I said, beautiful. He said, 20% I try to go to left, and the other 20%, he said, I try to go to right. <laughs> now... Now, Kenny Landro, my center fielder, who went to Arizona State, and I questioned him on how he got in there. <laughs> and he said to me, did you hear that? I said, yeah. He said, I said, did you hear it? He said, yeah. He said, that's the best hitting theory I've ever heard. I've, he said, I've been to big leagues 13 years, and that's the best hitting theory I've ever heard. Landro, we're playing in San Francisco. Some of our, our batter hits the ball, looks like it's a home run, and we all jump up. Landro blocks me out, and I can't see what the ball, but I see the guy stop at second base, so I know he didn't, the ball wasn't good. Uh, a home run. I said, uh, said to Kenny, I mean, said to Landro, I said, how far did that ball miss from going out of here? I thought that ball was over the fence. He said, that ball hit two-fourths of the way up on that fence. <laughs> two-fourths of the way. He went to Arizona State now. Remember that. And I've got to win with those guys. You've got you to remember that now, see? Yeah, Saxy, in baseball, in baseball you have signs. Take, bunt, hit and run, and steal. Four signs. Now you would think, you would think that nobody could miss those signs, but they did. They really and truly did. So one day, we're playing in San Francisco, and Reggie, uh, no, Manny Moser, our first base coach, and the first base coach tells the runner, 
If he calls him, if he calls him by his, by, uh, no, he said if he, he winks. You look over and if, if the first base coach did that, you know the steal sign is on, right? Yeah. So when it, we're in San Francisco and Saxy's on first base and I give the steal sign and he doesn't run. Well, I figured, you know, I told him, if you don't get a good jump, I don't want you to run because you're going to be thrown out. So I give a steal sign again and he doesn't go again. And I give him the steal sign again and he doesn't go and they hit a ground ball, short, second, first, double play. When they come in, I said to, to Manny Mota, I said, Manny, did he look at you? He said, yeah, he looked at me. I said, did you wink? He said, yeah, but he winked back. <laughs> okay. Now let's go ahead three more years now. Now we're in Philadelphia. Now Reggie Smith's the first base coach. Steve Sachs is on first base, and I give the steal sign, he doesn't go. I give the steal sign again, he doesn't go. Now he calls timeout, and he walks over to talk to Reggie Smith, and I'm going, what's going on out there? I mean, he's got only a couple of signs. He don't have to worry about the bunt sign, now he's down to three. He don't have to worry about the take sign, now he's down to two. So the guy misses one of two signs. So when they come back in, I said to Reggie, what went on down there? He said, I don't want to tell you. I said, what do you mean you don't want to tell me? He said, I, want, no, I don't want to tell you. I said, why? He said, because if I tell you what happened, you're going to get mad. And when you get mad, we, we don't like being around you, so I'm not going to tell you. I said, you're going to tell me, and I want to know what happened down there. He said, okay. He said, now, the sign for, for the coach, for, he calls you by your last name. You know the steal sign is on. Now, that's not that hard, right? So he says, the guy's taking the lead. He said, okay, Saxy. Saxy, steal sign. Take a good lead, Saxy. Come on, take a good lead, Saxy. Doesn't go. It's next pitch. Saxy, come on, take a good lead. Come on, Saxy, you can do it. You got to steal this base, Saxy. Come on. Didn't go. Now, this is what I want to hear. Why did he call timeout and go to Reggie Smith and talk? And Reggie, I said, what happened, Reggie? He said, he came to me and he said, hey, Reggie, how long have you known me? He said, what? what's the matter you? He said, get back, man, let's go. He said, no, no, I want to know. Red said, why? He said, don't you think you should start calling me by my first name? Yeah. And you got to win with those 25 guys. Remember that. All right. I could remember we're playing a big, big series with the Cincinnati Reds. We go into Cincinnati and I say, Man, I better go to church, man. I need a lot of help with this club. You know, I want to battle those, that big red machine. So I go to church, and who comes in and sits right next to me but the manager of the Cincinnati Reds? Sits right there. Now, I know why he was there, and he knows why I'm there. So at the conclusion of the Mass, he and I are walking out the center aisle together. And as we approach the front door, he says, wait for me outside, I'll be right out. 
So I said, where's he going? The mass is over. And I watched him, and he went to the side of the church, and he knelt down, and he lit a candle. So I go over that side. <laughs> I go in front of the altar. When he left, I went down and blew that candle out. I knew one thing, he was not lighting that candle for a dead relative. So all throughout the camp, I said, hey, Mac, he ain't going to win it, pal. I blew it out. And we clobbered him that day, 13 to 2. Oh, about eight months ago, eight months ago, I got a card from him and his wife, Ellen. They're in Italy. And it, so all they said on the card was, try blowing this one out. Wow. So which means you got to do everything you can to win. You got to take every advantage that you can to beat the other team. And when you have 25 guys, to get the best out of them, to make them believe uh, you know, uh, Cardinal O'Connor, he, he did a memorial mass for my mother in New York, and he wanted to see me after the, after the mass. Now, you know, the only cardinal I ever met was Stan Musial, you know. <laughs> so I go into the, his office and thank him for the mass, and he said, I want to ask you something. He said, every time I hear you talk, you talk about motivation. Are you trying to tell us you have to motivate guys making $10 million a year, $15 million a year, $20 million a year? I said, yes. Everybody in this country, from the President of the United States on down to the lowest job, at some time or another, needs to be motivated. And he said, when did you start believing in motivation? I said, I remember the day that I can motivate players. I was managing Spokane of the Pacific Coast League. We're playing in Tucson. We got them beat two to one, bottom of the eighth inning, and the bases were loaded. And I had a little left-hand pitcher on the mound named Bobby O'Brien. Now I thought, let me go out and get this guy fired up. If he gets this guy out, we're going to win this game. So I go out and I said, Bobby, if the heavens could come apart and you could hear the voice of the big dodger in the sky talking to you, and he says to you, Bobby, this is the last hitter you're going to face on earth, and you're going to die and come to heaven with me. I said, son, how would you like to go facing the Lord? Giving up a base hit or getting this guy out? He said, Skipper, I want to go facing the Lord, getting this guy out. I said, then when you make that next pitch, how do you know that you're not going to die, son? And if you are going to die, I want you to get him out before you die. And before I could get in the dugout, he threw the ball. The guy got a base hit. <laughs> Two runs scored. They went ahead, four to three. And I've got to take him out. And I got, man, I, I had this guy right where I wanted him. And I went out there. I said, what happened, Bobby? He said, Skipper, you had me so afraid of dying, I couldn't concentrate on the hitter. Now that's motivation. If I can get that guy to believe he's going to die before he throws that baseball, I certainly can get them to be better ball players. So that's motivation, I told the Cardinal. And he said, well, it's good motivation. <laughs>
More from a Reagan Forum featuring Tom Lasorda after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to a Reagan Forum featuring Tommy Lasorda. But, uh, you know, managing the Dodgers for 20 years, being with the Dodgers now, this is my number 65 years, and I feel that... And I feel that managing the Dodgers was a privilege and an honor. And I tried to uphold that tribute. I tried to represent the Dodgers in the highest class of dignity and character. When you're one of only 20, when I was managing then, I was 16, 8 and 8. Now there's 30 major league teams. So you have to represent your team. No matter where you go, you represent. When I go to fight, I got in a fight in the bar, they don't say, there's Tommy Lasorda from Norris down Pennsylvania. They say, there's Tommy Lasorda of the Dodgers. So I always tried to do that in the 20 years and then the 64 years I've been with them. And it's, it's a privilege to be able to be a manager of a major league team. Now, I watch games today, and I, I, I'm amazed at the salaries that they are paying today. It's just unbelievable. I thought they were they're paying with a lot, you know, kind of money they pay these guys with. It's amazing. Uh, with uh, Kershaw, he gets so much a pitch. <laughs> Every pitch he throws, they, they measure it out. When I was pitching, <laughs> you Somebody pitched you through a game that counted. That's what it does, the difference. So I believe without a doubt that I am really a lucky guy. Married 64 years and married to the Dodgers for 65 years. <laughs> and I love every minute of both. You know, when we make up in the morning, thank God we're alive. And we go to our places of work or whatever. And we go there, we got to go there with a lot of rhythm in it. You got to believe in what you're doing. You got to work hard. You got to represent your organization to the top. And you got to pay the price. As she said a moment ago that... I said there were three types of people, and that's true. You got to make it happen in life, just as well as in baseball or any other place. You get up in the morning, if you're working with some organization, you got to be proud to be with that organization. You got to love it, you got to do everything in your power to make it best. 
When you go in the next day, you say, I'm going to be better today than I was yesterday. I'm going to give everything I have to this great organization that I'm represented. And if you can't do that, then you should go get another job because you're not a happy person. And that's what, you, that's what it's going to take to, to do that. So I conclude this talk by saying that when you go to bed tonight, and you lay your head on the pillow. You thank God for all that he's given you. Sometimes you might feel cheated, denied, or deprived. Just look over your shoulder and see how many people are worse off than you. So you must be thankful for what you have. And if you have any compassion in your heart, you'll say a prayer for Tommy and the Dodgers. Thank you. So Tommy has agreed to take a few questions. We have a few minutes. And in order to ask the question, you do need a microphone. So if everyone will sit down, we have staff members in the audience here with microphones, so please don't shout out your question until you have a microphone because we are live streaming. We are very fortunate that our first question is coming from one of our special Dodger family members. Thomas Charles Lasorda. Hi, Russ. You've had great stories. I've heard many of them. Two of them come to mind, but I'll just ask you for one. I'm going to give you two names. Buster Maynard. Oh, that's a pretty good name. You want me to explain that Tell name? Tell that story. Well, when I was in the eighth grade at Holy Savior, <laughs> this is a heck of a story. And I, uh, I heard that the nun was going to take the patrol officers down to Philadelphia to see a major league game free of charge. So I became a patrol officer. I stood out there in the rain and in the snow and in the hail, helping the kids across the street. Because I couldn't wait till I was going to be able to go down and see a major league game. I never saw a major league game in my life. So when the time came, the nun took six of us to Shibe Park, Philadelphia. And the New York Giants were playing the Phillies. And I was trying to get some autographs. I see, I knew every player in the major leagues. I knew their middle names. I knew their batting averages. My father used to say, if you study in school like that, you'll be a professor already, he said. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm trying to get some autographs outside of the clubhouse. Now, in old Philadelphia ballpark, when the visiting team came out of the clubhouse, they turned to the left and they walked about 20 yards with the fans. And, the, and then they veer off to the right and they're on the baseball field. So I asked this guy for his autograph and he pushed me. He goes, get the hell out of the way. I couldn't believe this guy. Major league player. Guys that I adored. Guys that I loved. Pushed me like that. I guess he was mad or something. I don't know. But I said, yeah, I'll get you. <laughs> And I bought a program for 10 cents. 
And I checked the number on his back and the number in the program. And his name was Buster Maynard. And I really hated the guy. <laughs> I'm going to say six or seven years later, I'm now pitching in the Sally League. I am pitching opening game. And I get the first two guys out. We're playing in Augusta, Georgia. I get the first two guys out, and I hear the guy on the public address said, now batting for the Augusta Yankees, the left fielder, Buster Maynard. <laughs> said, That's the rat that pushed me. <laughs> well, you know where the first pitch went. Ralph will tell you. <laughs> you know where that first pitch went, and I lowered the boom on him. The hat went one way, the bat went another way, and... He got up and he didn't say anything, dust himself off, and I blew him again. I dumped him again. Boy, and you don't know how happy I was to see this guy on his back with his toes pointing up to the big dodger in the sky. What a sight that was for me. I got him. I finally got this guy. So he said to me, you throw at me again, I'm going to have to come out there after you. I said, well, you better come out now and save me the next pitch because the next pitch I'm not going to miss you. So he said, just don't throw at me again. Well, I didn't have good control anyway, so I threw and I missed him again. Now, here he comes and we had a battle. And after the game was over, I was walking out of the clubhouse and this guy walked up to me in civilian clothes. And he says, where's Tom Lasorda? And I wanted to know who he was because I thought maybe it was cops looking for me. <laughs> he said, my name is Buster Maynard and I want to see him. I said, well, you're looking at him. I said, what do you want, some more? I said, I battled you on the field. Do you want to still fight? He said, no, no, I don't really. He said, look, I'm old. He said, I played in the major leagues for six years. And he said, the only reason I'm playing here is my buddy is the manager of this team. And he asked me if I could play for about a month or two for him. And I did. And I have to see you throw at me. Now, I, he said, I've been in baseball a long time. I know there's only two reasons why a guy will deliberately throw at a batter. Number one, he doesn't like him. Number two, the batter's getting a lot of hits off him. So he's got to teach him a lesson. He said, why did you throw at me? And I told him the story. I said, when you come out of the clubhouse in, in Philadelphia, I asked you for your autograph and you pushed me away. And I was screaming at you. I looked on the card and I saw your name, Buster Maynard. And I finally got you. He said, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. Yeah. And he walked away shaking his head. Didn't believe but I told my players always that story. I said, so when that young man asks you for your autograph, give it to him. <laughs> or he may grow up one day to knock you right on your backside. Yeah. All right over here. I'm Victor. And I want to get your opinion about what's happening right now in Los Angeles with the Clippers. Um, there's a lot of damage control going on. There's a lot of thoughts going on. 
and um, fans don't know what to do. Um, they're kind of kind of confused about it. The players obviously are distracted. The, the fans have been there thick and, thin, thick and thin for the players to support them, and now they don't know if they should support them or not, if they should go to the games or not. We haven't heard any denials of anything from Mr. Sterling. So there's a lot of, a lot of damage control out there. In your opinion, what can be done to fix it? What should be done right now? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't want to get into something like that because it's big and terribly wrong. But the thing about it is that the players, they should want to go out. They should go out and play. They should go out and play and want to win. But all year they played hard and they won many games and they lost games where they're down and destitute. But now they have a chance to really. What's the, what's the difference? Like, why don't you get to play? That's all I think I can think of. But it's not a good thing that happened. Tommy over here. Hey, Tommy, uh, uh, could you uh, lead this bunch in a little prayer for Donnie? Donnie needs some help. <laughs> Listen, if Donnie picks up this paycheck every two weeks, he don't need help. <laughs> no, Donnie, he's doing, a, he's doing a great job as the manager of the Dodgers. I spent a lot of time with him, and believe me, Hey, when they don't hit, who do they blame? The manager. When they don't pitch. I used to say, when I was the manager, when, when we won, I'm waiting for the press, man. I've got, got some stories I want to tell them. They never come to see me. They go to the players. But when they lose, they come right in and come to my office and come to me, see? So it's, 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 it's like getting off the start. But you got to remember one thing about baseball. It is evident, evident, that every team in baseball, no, no matter how good or bad they are, they're going to lose one-third of their games at 54. Every team will lose 54 games. And every team, no matter what, will win 54 games. But that third part is the one that separates the top man at the top and the bottom. That's the one that separates the team that has the hustle, the team that has the desire, the team that has the thing. It's like what I did with the Olympic team. I, I had a team. They gave me a team that I did not know. It took me 10 days to learn their names, honestly. I, I never saw these guys before except one guy, and that was a catcher on our team. And I knew him because I, he played with Toronto, and I saw him playing against us. But I took that team to Australia, and I said to them, I said, I don't know who you guys are. I don't know if you're married or single. I don't know if you're good, mediocre, or bad. But I'm going to tell you something. We're going to bring that gold medal back to the United States. You know why? Because baseball is America's game. It doesn't belong to the Italians or the Cubans or the Puerto Ricans. It's, I said, it's our game. It's our game. We're going to bite those donkeys. And I said to them, I don't know your names, but I will know them by the time this thing is over. 
We're going to play and we're going to bring that gold medal back to the United States where it belongs in baseball. Baseball is our game. So when we play the Cubans, they said nobody could beat the Cubans. Nobody. So I had a pitcher on my team, and this guy had such a great arm. And I'm saving him for the big game against Cuba. Ben Sheets. So we're eating dinner. Ben and I are eating dinner. And I said, Ben, tonight you're going to pitch the biggest game of your life, Ben. Ben, you may go to Milwaukee and maybe win Cy Young. You may go to Milwaukee and maybe win the World Series. But tonight, Ben, you are going to pitch the biggest game of your life. You're going to pitch the game for the United States of America. And he looked at me and he said, who are we playing? <laughs> so I knew, they couldn't, I knew the Cubans couldn't intimidate this guy. <laughs> because we were guaranteed on that. And by golly, we brought that gold medal right here where it belongs in the United States. And it may be the last time. We have a question right here in the middle. Could you tell us a little bit about Kirk Gibson's home run? <laughs> that was a great one, without a doubt. But I want to tell you something. You know, there was a little strategy on that play. Believe me when I tell you this. Kirk Gibson had never come out on the bench. He had never put his uniform on. And every inning, I would run in there and stand in the door of the training room and say, how do you feel, big boy? And he'd go this way. Every, every inning. I thought maybe there's something he can do, but nothing. Finally, it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and our first hitter is going to be Mike Sosia, and then Jeff Hamilton, our third baseman, and then the, our shortstop, and then the pitcher spot. So I told Mike Davis, Mike, you're going to hit for the pitcher. So... All of a sudden, Mitch, the clubhouse, says, Tommy, come here, come here, come here, Tommy. And Mitch, leave me alone, man. Come here. So I go, what? He said, Gibson's up the tunnel, and he's got his uniform on, and he says he can hit for you. So I run up there. I said, is that right? He said, yeah. If you need me, I can hit for you. Okay. So I run back down. Now we changed the lineup. Now I'm going to have Mike Davis hit for the shortstop. And we'll have Gibson hit for the pitcher. And now, when it was Davis up there hitting, Gibson wanted to go on the on-deck circle. And I said, no, no. Everybody in this ballpark, including those guys up in the press box, all think you cannot play in this game. So just sit here with me. And I put Dave Anderson on the on-deck circle. Now, Dave Anderson had about as much chance of hitting Eckersley as a one-legged man has in the fanny kicking contest. So naturally, the catcher telling him, we're not pitching to this guy, we're going to pitch to Anderson. So they walk Davis to pitch to Anderson. And that's when I said, okay, big boy, get out there now. 
And when he got out of that dugout, he electrified the fans. I never heard anything like it. I got goosebumps when I saw him walk up to the plate. So I said to my coach, I said, we're going to give him two shots to hit the ball out. If he doesn't, then we'll play for a tie. Of course, Saxe's going to be the next hitter. So anyway, the count went down a couple foul balls he fouled off, and then he finally hit the ball. And I'll tell you, I never watched, I never watched the ball when it was hit. All I was watching was Conseco. And I saw him go back, back, and back. And then when I saw him against the fence, I knew the ball was in the seats. And that was one of the most dramatic home runs that I've ever seen in baseball. I've seen a lot of great home runs of great importance, but none had the drama attached to it than that one did. And when the L.A. Sports Council went to voting on what was the greatest team in the history of Los Angeles, they voted on those Dodgers. So that's why that was. We have a question over here. Well, first, I have to say, you and I share the same birthday. Really? So that's just awesome to me. It's a lucky day. Absolutely. Lucky day. <laughs> to hear you just describe that about Gibby, he's just always been like my love. But I want to ask you, in all these years and working with the Dodgers, besides the wins and the losses, what has been the best and what has been the worst part of that? The best and the rest, huh? That's pretty good. <laughs> well, I'd have to say the best part of the thing of the, was when I got the job. That was the greatest feeling for me. And I told Peter O'Malley, honestly, I said to him, Peter, I'd take his job for nothing. But I mean, I have to feed my family and somebody, but I got to at least have some kind of money. But that, to me, to be the manager of the Dodgers, the organization, I send all those players to the big leagues. They all played for me in the minor leagues, every one of them. And I, here I was now with them. And I had a chance to manage them, just like I managed them in AAA. I managed them in the, in the rookie league. I managed them in the Dominican Republic. And here I am now going to manage these guys that I love very, very dearly. And that's how we won. Because I made them believe, because the big red machine said they, nobody can beat them. They beat us in 19... Uh, uh, 65, they beat us by 16 games. 66, they beat us by, no, 76. And they beat us by 18 games, and I took over the club. And I said to my players, I don't want anybody wearing anything red in this clubhouse. <laughs> I hate the color red, and I hate the Cincinnati Reds. You remember that, Ross? Nobody could walk in that club. My wife had just bought a brand new red raincoat. I said, don't put it on. She hung in the closet. I, I want them to hate the Reds. I wanted them to believe that they could beat them. I, I wanted them to know they were capable of beating them. And by golly, we got out of the gate and we were 22 and 4 coming out of Florida. And when one on the win it, we beat the Reds by about 12 games. 
Now, Sparky came out in the paper, he said, well, he was lucky. <laughs> we beat him again. <laughs> and I called him, I said, Sparky, that wasn't luck, was it? But every time Sparky and I went to a dinner, Sparky and I played together four years, and I loved the man. But when I became the manager, I called him. I said, Sparky, our friendship's over. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I said, I cannot beat you and be your friend. So I hate you, Sparky. <laughs> I don't like you, Sparky. And I'm going to beat your brains out, Sparky. He said, yeah, Alston couldn't do it. I said, I don't care about Alston. I'm talking about me and the Dodgers. We're going to get you, Sparky. Be ready. And we did. We beat him the first year, and then we beat him the second year. Now, we used to go out and speak together, and he would tell everybody I got him fired. <laughs> they are honoring me in Las Vegas, and Joe Morgan was on the show and everybody, and Sparky got up and said the same thing. And I got up and I said, hey, Sparky, I didn't get you fired. See Joe Morgan over there? If he'd have hit better, you wouldn't have got fired. <laughs> But in the 20 years that I managed the Dodgers, I'm going to say this to you. I couldn't wait till I got to the park. I could not wait till I beat some team. I could not tell you how much I enjoyed the fruits of victory. That was what I battled, and I had the players battling it for it, and the players believing in it. So the 20 years that I was there, I cherished those years. I had great, great times. I had some time, bad times, but I think everybody has bad times in life. But I had good times, a lot of times. We have time for one more question. It'll come from up top, Tommy. Uh, thank you, Skipper, um, for being such a great humanitarian and an avid and faithful supporter of the Los Angeles Dodgers. I'm gonna take you back to memory lane 38 years ago this month if you remember, it's been called one of the great, 100 great plays of baseball. Uh, it occurred with Rick Monday. Can you kind of lead through that, uh, what was going through your mind during that event, describe the event, and uh, any comments and follow-up you had with Rick Monday as a result of that? Well, I was coaching third base. We were playing the Cubs, and we were at bat. And all of a sudden, I see Rick Monday take off running towards left field. Well, I knew Rick Mundy. He was a good friend of mine. And I took off out there after him. I don't know what he was doing, but I was going to be with him. Well, when he got there, he picked the flag up and kept running. And I see these two guys. I don't know. They, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't Americans, I'll tell you that. And I told him, I said, you know, there's 50,000 people in the stands. I said, why don't you guys hit me? Come on, hit me. Because see that ground? I'll bury you right in that ground. <laughs> they wouldn't dare to hit me, so Monday became the hero, and I was second <laughs> to the hero. Thank you, Tommy. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed this time with you today. You know, I, I wanted, I'd like to see people laugh. Laughter is the food for the soul. 
When you can laugh, you can forget whatever problems you might have in life. And today we laughed. And today we're part of, I was proud to be here today being your speaker for the day. Thank you very much. During his time with the Dodgers, Tommy Lasorda became very close friends with Ronald and Nancy Reagan, even spending the evening together the night of the 1984 election for President Reagan's second term. The president, a lover of baseball, was a true admirer of one of its legends, Tommy Lasorda. Thank you for listening. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.